Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome to this week's episode of the Pre-Paces podcast. This week we were joined by Dr. Sarah Verhemmel, a TAVI fellow working in Rotterdam, who helps us tackle aortic regurgitation as it might be presented in Paces. Sarah was a great sport, an amazing guest, and I absolutely loved having her on the show. This week's Buy Me A Coffee dedications are firstly to Amy. Massive congratulations on your first time pass, Amy. Thank you as well to David Henshaw for your kind donation and kind words about the podcast. And a massive thank you to Cleaner, who preemptively donated three days before her exam. Let's hope some good karma pays itself forward and you get that all-important pass. Just another shout-out to those of you sitting the new Paces 2023 format in this final diet of 2023. Please do get in touch with the show and let me know how it went for you. How were the new station timings? And just generally, how did it feel? Okay, guys, enough on that for now. Let's get into my chat on aortic regurgitation with Dr. Sarah Verhemmel. Welcome to another episode of the Pre-Paces podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams. And this week is another cardiology station. And this time we're branching back into the clinical examination side of cardiology with aortic regurgitation. And we have another fantastic guest to help us in this quest. Dr. Sarah Verhemmel is an ST5 cardiology registrar in the Wales Deanery, but is taking an out of program as a structural heart disease research fellow at Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. So, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's uh, it's very interesting, and I wish I had this uh, when I was preparing for PACES, so people are very lucky to have you, Sam. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. It's a delight to have you with us to discuss this PACES station of aortic regurgitation. And so let's just start off with a, with a sort of basic question. Is it, Why is it important that PACES includes something like aortic regurgitation? Because it's not one of the more common murmurs that our listeners may encounter in their day-to-day practice, is it? No, I agree with you. But the issue is like in many patients with chronic aortic regurgitation, the condition progresses slowly with minimal issues during a quite lengthy symptom-free phase. And mild AR can remain stable for years in some people. But when others, so when people actually develop severe AR, that's when we should probably freak out as physicians because these patients then tend to have left ventricular dilatation, systolic dysfunction, and ultimately develop heart failure with the signs and symptoms associated with heart failure. Yeah, definitely. And the the importance of that obviously is if they're getting severe heart failure with severe valve disease is that they need to have the valve fixed and that often involves an inpatient stay. And so listeners may find themselves looking after these patients either on the cardiology wards or when they're on call. Correct. And so 
uh, Sarah, how often would you say you see and manage patients with aortic regurgitation in your clinical practice? So maybe we can broaden that out from you know any degree of aortic regurgitation, not necessarily the severe end of the spectrum. So first of all, I want to emphasize that actually the global prevalence of AR is often underestimated. So if I quote to you the Framingham Offspring Study, they basically said that there's a prevalence of more or equal to mild AR for male gender assigned at birth of 13%. And the equivalent to that is 8.5% for the female gender assigned at birth. And what's interesting is that patients um, who are male uh, and have bicuspid aortic valve, they often have a first presentation with moderate to severe AR compared to females. And in all honesty, I did not focus on all of this uh, until I started doing my research fellowship at the Erasmus Medical Center with my professor, Nicholas van Meegum, because as a TAVI fellow, I'm asked to see these cases now quite regularly. And while health systems actually differ worldwide, um, the Netherlands and the UK are somewhat um, yeah, similar to each other. So that's how often I see them. But when you try to ask me like, oh, so how would you manage these patients in clinical practice? Where according to all international guidelines, severe AR usually goes for surgery. However, um, TAVI is now offered to high risk surgical patients based on the heart team assessments. And many aortic regurgitation patients lack the annular calcification necessary for TAVI valve stability so therefore, these patients are automatically pushed towards the surgical route. Now, the issue with that is that we now have a complex patient cohort, which sometimes is not suitable to have surgery or cannot wait that long to go for the surgical route. So now in Europe, um, we've started with the Jena valve, and that's the only valve that's actually approved for patients with severe AR, and the initial outcomes are really encouraging. So um, great times ahead. Yeah, definitely something for listeners to watch this space is, is the role of TAVI in aortic regurgitation. Obviously, they will be familiar with it in the context of aortic stenosis, but as you say, aortic regurgitation is a uh, expanding field. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation of aortic regurgitation in paces. Great. So um, Sarah, we're going to start off talking about aortic regurgitation in a pure examination station. So that's our station three, where the candidates will have six minutes to examine the patient and then four minutes of discussions of their findings, differential diagnosis, investigations and management. So I wonder before we start about the uh, before we start discussing the actual examination findings, I wonder if you can just define basically what is aortic regurgitation physiologically? What's happening? So AR is, in layman terms, leakage of the aortic valve. Um, but if you really want to understand AR, you have to divide it into acute and chronic aortic regurgitation. During your paces uh, and your MRCP, you'll deal a lot with chronic aortic regurgitation. And the pathophysiology works out this way. The left ventricle gradually enlarges to maintain a normal cardiac output despite the valve regurgitation, which keeps the left ventricle diastolic pressure stable. This also explains to you why these patients are usually asymptomatic for a long period of time because of the gradual dilating left ventricle and the chronically increased diastolic volumes. This dampens usually the effects or the hemodynamic effects of aortic regurgitation and therefore these patients can live a great quality of have a good quality of life with um, no limitations because their heart is dealing with this issue by itself bit by bit. Then if you look at chronic aortic regurgitation in the guidelines it's often staged according to valve anatomy and valve hemodynamics, which I'll not go into because this is too detailed for the PACES station. One thing I do want to focus uh, a bit more about is the acute because, yes, you're studying for PACES, but you also want to see what does this 
or how can this podcast also help you in emergency situations when it comes to aortic regurgitation? And I really, really, really want to emphasize, and I think, I hope Sam does <laughs> agrees with me, that acute aortic regurgitation is an emergency presentation because what happens is is that your heart doesn't have enough time to react to the changes so you'll have an undilated ventricle which is suddenly overloaded which leads to a swift rise in the left ventricular diastolic pressure and reduces the the cardiac output resulting in cardiogenic shock i don't know if you agree with me sam but we do have to teach them at paces, but we also need to let them know what clinical presentations are deemed emergency presentations when they're on call yeah absolutely and I think probably uh, sensible when we come on to the management, we'll, we'll yeah. discuss m- more in depth with regard to the acute versus chronic and then the importance of um, accurately identifying uh, acute aortic regurgitation as, as a, a heart emergency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. So fantastic. Let's get started with our PACES station then. So this is your examination station. And obviously with these cardiology patients, uh, they're, they're going to come with some form of vignette. And the vignette, I was thinking, most likely, as you've already alluded to, Sarah, these patients, when they get progressive aortic regurgitation, they develop symptoms of heart failure, which are most likely to present with breathlessness. And so I guess that is probably the most likely vignette, is that this patient's presented with breathlessness, although the caveat to that is a patient with uh, infective endocarditis of the aortic valve, who they may, the vignette may be something like, this patient is presented with fever and breathlessness or just a fever or something like that and so if we start off from the very beginning of our uh, examination we usually start off at the end of the bed so what can our candidates uh, expect to see or what might give them an indication that uh, AR might be the diagnosis from the end of the bed is there anything particular they should look out for? Yeah, so I think um, when it comes to AR, looking at the end of the bed it's very very important only because if you have a tall and slender build and then you look at the arms and the span and the legs and the fingers and they're disproportionately long for example this person is actually wearing glasses and you're like hmm so okay so i have a tall and slender built person with disproportionately long arms and legs and fingers they're also wearing glasses and they're wearing orthopedic shoes for example hmm should i be thinking of morphinoid Ding, 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 ding. Yes, well done. This is good because these are the patients that I also saw in multiple courses where they just ask you at the end of the bed to do a spot diagnosis. And um, that's why it's quite important with aortic regurgitation to make sure that you have a vision of what a morphinoid body habitus looks like. And then once you have that, you will feel like a winner and the whole station goes well. So that's why it's very important to take your time um, with the inspection. I don't know if you uh, have any other uh, suggestions, Sam? No, I think absolutely right. I think a morphinoid body body habitus is something which it may not, you know, hit you straight as you walk in the station, but it may be something that you find through the course of your examination. You think, gosh, this person is quite tall and they've got very long arms as you say and whilst it may not hit you straight at the start of the station it might be something that slowly dawns on you through the course of your examination you think aha i've got it now so don't worry if it's something that you don't detect right at the start but it may be something that dawns on you as you go through uh, and you and you slowly realize this person has a marfanoid body habitus but obviously great if you can get it um early on and then you can start to think about what you're going to say to your examiner and so the next bit that we would normally move to is examining the hands of our patients in the usual way, we take the the pulse of our patient in the normal way, but there's one uh, specific uh, finding in the pulse, um, which is often talked about in paces and often also discussed in sort of undergraduate level cardiology examination, which is uh, a collapsing pulse. So I wonder, Sarah, can you just talk us through the collapsing pulse in aortic regurgitation and what it, what it exactly means for our candidates? So uh, Sam, I like to call it the water hammer pulse. Only because I think it, it sounds very cool to say this patient has water hammer pulsation. But yeah, it's called a collapsing <laughs> pulse. Sorry. It just reminds me of Thor and stuff like that anyway. But um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Anyway, so basically, um, this is a pulsation that's characterized by a rapidly rising and falling arterial pulse with a wide pulse pressure. For you to be able to exaggerate this pulsation is what I tend to say is put the arm of the patient completely down, 
put your fingers on the radial poles and put the other fingers on the antecubital fossa as you would measure normal pulses in the radial artery and the antecubital fossa. And then if they don't have any shoulder issues, please ask them if they have any shoulder issues <laughs> because that's failing because you haven't thought about the patient. If they, haven't, if they don't have any shoulder issues, ask them if you are okay with raising their arm really quickly. So when you go from a very low position to a very high position with the radial artery, you will feel a pulse that is basically bashing in your fingers and that's what I, and that's the water hammer pulse because it hammers in your fingers which is quite nice um, not only that when you're already feeling the pulse don't just feel one side please feel both sides also because we're talking about aortopathies so yes the patient will not present with an acute dissection because he probably shouldn't have been a patient candidate then to, to be seen by you but um, they might have some uh, discrepancies in the volume and the pulsations in both arms and then you know oh wait something is going on there might be an aortopathy going on not only that while you're feeling the pulse sometimes if the AR is so severe you can actually see the de Musset sign which is basically the head bobbing sign the small Puppets that you see in people's car that just bob, that's exactly what the Tamusay's line is. And not only that, if you're inspecting the hands, make sure, make sure, make sure that you look at the capillary beds because sometimes you can see capillary pulsation in the fingertips or in the lips, but let's just keep it at the fingertips. And that's called Quinky's pulses. And last but not least, if you're looking at the hands, make sure you look at signs of infective endocarditis, like Sam uh, explained previously. So you look at splinter hemorrhages, you can also feel in the um, in the joints whether there might be any lesions, like the Jane lesion or the Osborne nodules. Um, I've never seen it. Have you, Sam? But these are things that you have to like act like you have to act like you're looking at it basically yeah i think they're very important uh, pertinent negatives to say that you've you've seen them and you've you've discounted them i have seen janeway lesions in my practice and i've seen splinter hemorrhages i don't think i've ever seen osler's nodes but i have seen the other two and so was there anything else in the hands sarah you wanted to cover no not not really i i I'm going to mention again, please feel both pulses because then the examiner knows that you're understanding what you're doing. You're trying to see if there's any symmetry in the pulses. Yeah, absolutely. And so then moving from the hands up the arms, and this is particularly relevant if uh, the patient vignette states they've had a fever or there's suspected endocarditis, is looking in the upper arm for a pick line um, or, or a midline any sort of central access uh, because in order to give them long-term intravenous antibiotics, they need a long form of access, which is often found in a pick line uh, or a midline, which can be found in the arms as well. And this might just be your opportunity to, as well as during the collapsing pulse, but to appreciate the long arms of a, of a marfanoid body habitus, if, if that's something which you've, which you've noticed. And then moving up to the face and neck, there are often other uh, marfanoid signs uh, to be found in the face and neck of these patients as well, Sarah, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. So when you're already looking at the arms, Sam, you can also quickly take a look at the chest because if they have pexus excavatum or incavatum, that already tells you like, okay, there's something else going on and patients with marfanoid habitus can have pectus excavatum or incavatum. And then when you look at the face and the neck, I haven't seen it before and I'm going to ask you now, Sam, but usually when I ask them to smile, you will see a lot of crowded teeth. Um, and you can also see that when you introduce yourself, you look, you already look at the patient and their face when you introduce yourself because they usually smile when they see you, I hope. Um, and then when you ask them to open up their mouth, it is described that you will see a high arched palate. Now, Sam, have you seen that? I don't think I've ever seen a, a high arched palate in my practice, I've, but, but I've seen pictures of it. Yeah. But yeah, I've not seen one in... in clinical practice so it would be good to say well i can't see a high arch palate so it's a nice negative finding and while you're looking in the mouth anyway make sure that you look at the uvula because one of the other signs with severe ar is the Mueller sign and that's basically systolic pulsation of the uvula 
fantastic. There are a, a, a ridiculous number of eponymous signs associated with aortic regurgitation. And yeah, yeah. probably at this point, it's worth saying that it's worth worth remembering uh, several so you can state these if they're present to the examiner. And also so you can uh, perform a focused examination of these signs if, if there is aortic regurgitation. Uh, but you don't need to learn the whole list of however many there are, like 20 or something. No, no, because... Only a few signs have been really described in literature to correlate with severity, or not all of them, but hey-ho, I like them. So. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So we've performed our examination up to the up to the chest, and you've already spoken about inspecting the chest specifically for chest wall deformities, which may be um, featured in, in Marfan's as well. But palpating and auscultating for our murmur is going to be where the money is in any cardiology station in particular that's going to be the most valuable uh, place to find your marks and likely where you're going to either make or break your station so if we start off with palpation because it's uh, usually the first thing we do before we auscultate what sort of things should our listeners be looking out for when they come to palpate the chest and palpate the cardiac borders yeah so if you already have in mind okay this might be a valvular pathology usually you need to make sure that the apex is not displaced and if the apex is displaced jackpot you can just feel where the displacement is of the apex and if they have severe aortic regurgitation you can actually feel an apical impulse um, because of the laterally displaced apex sometimes when you go towards the p2 area you can actually feel a systolic thrill um, and that's like um uh, a thrill that's associated with pulmonary hypertension or parasternal heave is what um, some other some others call it. Um, and then if you really, really want extra points, <laughs> usually these patients have signs of severe heart failure. So you can palpate for pulsations of the liver and pulsations of the spleen. So the liver is called the Rosenbach sign and the spleen is called the Gerhardt sign. There you go. I'm done with my signs, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but critically, I wouldn't I wouldn't palpate the liver before I've listened to the heart sounds in a cardiology station. Yeah, of course. But if you're doing it anyway, like you can what I said what I did, I don't know if you did it too. I was like palpating listening and then i was just doing those two stations together but everybody has their own way of doing it i guess so um yeah definitely And so this the the murmur is going to be our most valuable source of info in this in this station so I wonder for listeners who maybe aren't that confident at diagnosing or listening to a diastolic murmur as opposed to a systolic murmur, if we talk about what are the what are the features of aortic regurgitation as a murmur, and then how best to differentiate a systolic from a diastolic murmur? Yeah, so first of all, sit your patient up, sit them forward and ask them to hold their breath. A aortic regurgitation murmur has been described as an early diastolic murmur. Now you're going to ask me, how the hell do I know what an early diastolic murmur is? Don't be arrogant. Just put your finger on the radial pulse. <laughs> you will know if it's systolic or diastolic. And then what I do want to tell you is that the intensity of the diastolic murmur does not necessarily correlate with the severity of AR. So don't tell me it's a two out of six or three out of six murmur or whatever. Just tell me what kind of murmur you heard based on what you felt with the pulsations and heard when you auscultated. Do you agree with this, Sam, or...? Yeah, definitely. I think the, the the certainly the loudness of the murmur doesn't correlate with severity, but I think with AR that the duration or length of the murmur is suggestive of of severity. So, yeah. whilst the loudness I don't think is that the length of the murmur is is associated with severity and the shorter the murmur the the more severe the valve lesion or the more severe the AR and that's because you've got way more blood coming back retrogradely through the aortic valve and if it, that's happening very quickly by the time uh, the sound is finished you know you've got a lot of blood coming back through the aortic valve in that time so hence it it, it marks the severity completely agree with you now i do have a question for you sam oh what's the differential of this murmur 
<laughs> well, uh, we're coming on to the differential diagnosis, at, 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 I think, in a, in, a, in, a, in a little bit, Sarah, I think, can't All we? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just um, because, yeah, yeah, we can talk about it a bit later because it's very important to be able to distinguish it from another valvular pathology. Um, if your patient's examiner is a bit um, rigid, he might ask you what the differential is of the murmur, but we'll get, get into it in a bit. We'll get into that just as soon as we finish the examination. And so, yeah, I completely mirror Sarah's description is is the easiest way of doing it is to put your fingers on the radial pulse. And hopefully as well, if you've listened to enough systolic murmurs, you've listened to enough aortic stenosis and much regurgitation, that you would know when you would expect to hear the murmur based on um, feeling the pulse. And the murmur would, would normally come very shortly after you feel the, the pulse hit your fingers. The only way I can describe it is that the, the murmur just comes before you feel the pulse hit your fingers. It, it's literally as, as as simple as that. And typically, it's described as a decrescendo murmur. So whereas in previous episodes of this podcast, we've talked about aortic stenosis being a crescendo decrescendo, where the, the almost the tone of the murmur is sort of up and down, it's almost like a decrescendo. So, I mean, I'm going to do my best impression, Sarah, but maybe you can see what you think. But it's more, whereas aortic stenosis is more like a, psh, psh, <laughs> no. AR is more like, just like a, psh, psh, psh. that's quite good, actually, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I've been practicing. It's really good, you know, <laughs> but I mean, broadly is that uh, how else, how else do you uh, find that you uh, best differentiate a diastolic murmur or is that much, uh, much the same as your own practice? No, in all honesty, Sam, I still put my, like, it doesn't matter how experienced you are, even my consultants, I still see them put their fingers on the radial pulse, uh, especially with the diastolic murmurs. I, I tend to think patients with the diastolic murmur also probably have some sort of systolic murmur going on. So therefore, you need to be able to certainly say what you're listening to. And I think by um, confirming it with the radial pulse, you're not doing yourself a disservice or your patient. Exactly. Fantastic. Usually to finish off the uh, cardiovascular examination, we've done uh, inspection, palpation and auscultation of the chest. And normally when I've sat the patient forward to listen to the aortic regurgitation and that important to say should be done at the left lower sternal edge of the chest whilst they're set up that's a good opportunity to listen at the lung basis listening for bibasal crepitation suggestive of heart failure as well as uh, palpate at the base of the spine for sacral edema before you then lie them back and then formally examine the legs for pedal edema there as well and um i think uh, i agree with you but um i like my extra points sam Go for it. Go for it. Add in the extras. <laughs> so I, I, I would, I would auscultate the femorals, because if you can hear a pistol shot pulse uh, over the femoral arteries, that's trop sign. Uh, I lied. I told you these were the last of my signs, but these are actually the last of my sign. And if you slightly compress the femoral artery while you're listening and you hear a systolic and diastolic brewery, that's the de rosier sign. That's it. I promise. I'm done. <laughs> no more signs. There's a there's a no an eponymous sign amnesty from this point forward. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but it's uh yeah, unfortunately AR is AR I think AR is like the most valvular pathology with the signs, isn't it? Oh yeah, definitely. There's there's, there's definitely not as many eponymous signs uh, in any of the other heart valve uh, heart valve problems for sure. Brilliant. So Sarah, the next bit, you mentioned about differential diagnosis earlier. Now, the differential diagnosis of diastolic murmurs is far less common than some of the systolic murmurs. So what is it that you were going to get onto uh, with regard to the uh, differential diagnosis? Because it's the easiest question for a lazy examiner is that, oh, what else could this be if it's not aortic regurgitation? Yes, please, please, please remember the cowboy name I'm going to tell you right now. Austin Flint Murmur. So the Austin Flint murmur is the differential murmur when it comes to aortic regurgitation diastolic murmur. Now this murmur is actually a mid-diastolic murmur and it's actually a mitral stenosis murmur and it distinguishes itself from the aortic regurgitation because it has an absent S1 and it also doesn't have an opening snap of the mitral valve. Now you're going to ask me, how am I going to know this? 
just remember the differential of the diastolic murmur is the cowboy Austin Flint murmur. Yeah, brilliant. And that is and the, and the pathophysiology of an Austin Flint murmur is is that it's it's the retrograde blood coming back through the aortic valve which impinges on the opening of the mitral valve and so then you get a murmur which mimics mitral stenosis yeah exactly it mimics it yeah and i think i mean the other thing would be mitral stenosis in the absence of aortic regurgitation so primary mitral stenosis is an option i have to say i've only ever seen i've seen only a handful of cases of severe mitral stenosis and all of the murmurs in those cases were extremely quiet and basically i could only hear them with the patient uh, optimized in the left lateral position with the with my stethoscope at the apex. I think it's a real devilishly hard murmur to try and uh, listen to. I don't know if you found that in your experience, Sarah, as well. Yeah, I when I see mitral stenosis on the echo, I'm like, oh, I didn't hear that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's uh, don't worry if you can't hear. It. It's one of the difficult, more difficult murmurs to um, distinguish, to be honest. So uh, yeah, definitely. And another one which I put down, which I, it's just madly unlikely unless you unless the patient has some form of congenital heart disease. But I've put pulmonary regurgitation. I, I can't see that I've ever, I don't think I've ever seen a case of pulmonary regurgitation to the point where it's causing a significant murmur. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. So basically, listeners, everything we just said is useless for your, <laughs> for your yes. cases. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So AR, more or less, in terms of diastolic murmurs, is the most important differential. So Sam, before ending your exam, what would you, what would you do? What would you mention? So obviously you mentioned your preferred diagnosis and any possible differentials and you talk about any of the bedside tests which you would want to uh, perform for your patients before you formally uh, finish the exam and start the uh, discussion. Um, what parts of that are, are going to be particularly important? So I, so guys, seriously mention fundoscopy because you're basically, by that point, I hope that you've clocked on that it's aortic regurgitation. If not, you'll probably figure out during your discussion with the examiner. But whatever you do, just mention fundoscopy because um, in aortic regurgitation, you might have patients who have roth spots, which are basically white-centered retinal hemorrhages due to endocarditis. Um, I'll be very honest with you, it's quite aspecific because it can be seen in various, various, various pathologies, including retinopathies associated with diabetes, HIV, hypertension, um, vitamin B12 deficiency, leukemia, myeloma. But I think it's very important to tell them that you would want to look at it, even if you don't, because it just shows that you're a well-rounded doctor that knows what they're doing do you agree sam have you ever done fundoscopy be honest i've, I've never done fundoscopy <laughs> in the context of ar but it's always something that you you should offer even if the likelihood is you're not going to be asked to do it yeah. and the, the other bedside test which i think would be important particularly if the patient is um presenting as a suggest or suggestive of uh, infective endocarditis is a urine dip yeah 100 percent looking for blood in the urine i think that's just it's, it's an absolutely essential thing if if it's suspicious for endocarditis but you'll then come on to your discussion with the examiner about the possible uh, differential diagnosis of your patient and i think at this point sarah it's probably important for us to talk about the chronic ar which they're likely to see in paces and then after that maybe we'll come on to managing a, acute uh, acute aortic regurgitation as well so if the listeners are asked about the causes of a chronic aortic regurgitation what what are the important causes that they need to be able to tell their examiner about i tend to start with the most common causes so i tend to then divide them into the developing world and the developed world so in the developing world the most common cause of ar is rheumatic heart disease and in the developed countries the most um, common cause of aortic regurgitation is aortic root dilatation, congenital bicuspid aortic valve, or calcific valve disease. Now, once you've done the most common, you can say whatever you want. By that, I mean you can then say the, the ones that are quite rare. So, for example, aortitis, syphilis, Takayasu, ankylosing spondylitis, or you can talk about connective tissue disease like Ehlers-Danlos, Marfan, and then the pseudoxanthoma elasticum. Now, Sam, 
How often have you seen Pseudoxanthoma elasticum? I've never seen Pseudoxanthoma elasticum, but we know that these cases are the type of cases that they will bring out for paces. So correct. Correct. Even if even if you never see it, this is one to be aware of. Correct. Correct. Because these are your chronic patients. I guess the other thing just to mention about those, because those are the most likely causes, the ones that you mentioned, the calcific disease, aortic root disease, or aortopathy and bicuspid valves, it's more or less impossible to tell the cause without further imaging or investigations. You can't tell you can't tell the cause clinically unless of course you've got additional signs to suggest I mean there's there's no peripheral clinical signs of a bicuspid valve, for example, but there there may be signs such as a marfanoid body habitus which might suggest that they have an aortopathy of some sort. But it's impossible to say you've got an aortopathy from a clinical perspective. Yeah, I agree with you. I guess as long as you mention the most common first, then you can just say the other less common. Um, plus, if you forget the less common ones, like, for example, aortitis due to syphilis, um, the examiner will not fault you for it because you will only deal with more common pathologies during your take and in your daily clinical practice. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, Sarah, you mentioned at the start about uh, we, we might take a bit of a sidetrack here to talk about a, a, acute aortic dissection, which we already mentioned is, is, a, is a heart valve emergency really and so what sort of situations do you think you'd you might find someone presenting with acute aortic regurgitation or or maybe we should be more specific and say acute severe aortic regurgitation so aortic dissection is, should be number one on the differential list um, the other one is uh, infective endocarditis um, if somebody has already had a cabbage so if they've already had a, a scar or a history of cabbage and you've seen it on the in the past medical history, then you need to think of prosthetic valve failure. It depends on where you work, <laughs> whether you deal with traumatic rupture of the valves um, due to blunt trauma or um, to the chest, so blunt trauma to the chest, or maybe people who've been in a road traffic accident. Unfortunately, iatrogenic is also something that can cause acute AR things that I've seen during my fellowship here. Um, so if you've had an aortic balloon valvotomy, um, yes, the whole point is to slightly um, open up the valve that's severely stenosed, but not the, to the point where you cause acute overload to the ventricle and cause them to go into cardiogenic shock because of that. So um, yeah, these are the most common causes of acute aortic regurgitation. Of course, there's more. But I think if you just have like five or six in your in your head, I think that would be sufficient. What do you think, Sam, when it comes to the uh, answers of the examiner? Yeah, I think that's um, fair enough. I think hopefully the examiner will appreciate that the patient in front of you hasn't got acute AR. But yeah, it's still important to know those causes, but also appreciate in your clinical practice that these patients present in florid pulmonary edema a lot of the time and as Sarah has said, it's it's of relatively rapid onset because the left ventricle hasn't got time or hasn't had months and years to uh, accommodate the additional additional afterload of of the uh, of the blood leaking back into the ventricle. So after you've discussed the uh, differential diagnosis with your examiner, you're going to be talking through the investigations, and that's going to include some of the things we've talked about already. We've talked about fundoscopy. We've talked about urine dip. Sarah, you mentioned at the start about a wide pulse pressure associated with the collapsing pulse. So always mention that you check the blood pressure and routine OBS. An ECG is going to be the most uh, straightforward cardiological investigation. So what sort of things on an ECG might the listeners be looking out for, Sarah? So because of the adaptive changes of the heart, the ECG is not that exciting, but typically you'll find 
um, signs of left ventricular hypertrophy with left ventricular strain um, and left axis deviation. But they do not, or they also don't tend to have arrhythmogenic kind of events. I don't know if you differ on that with me, uh, Sam, but the ECG is usually just plain. <laughs> so I don't know if you've, if you've seen it differently or you think differently about it. No, not particularly. I think that's, I think that's accurate. <laughs> Yeah, And then the next things are going to be our lab tests, so our blood tests. And um, by and large, it's going to be looking for things such as infective endocarditis. So it's going to be looking at inflammatory markers, full blood count for white cells, a CRP or an ESR. And then blood cultures are going to be really, really important in, in diagnosing that as well. And I think uh, I'd like to add one more thing, Sam, and it's um, it's been implemented in the ESC guidelines now. It's the NT-ProBMP as a prognostic marker. So then moving on to our imaging, important to think about chest X-rays, looking for pulmonary edema or any signs of heart failure there. But an echo is going to be the most important investigation, Sarah, isn't it? Yeah, so in an echo, you can already see if, if the windows are optimal. You can see whether it's a bicuspid valve you're dealing with or a tri leaflet one. You can also kind of see if the aortic root is dilated in the uh, parasitic long axis view. And if you're suspecting your patient has infective endocarditis or if they're a repetitive IV abuser or whatever, you will find a large vegetation that causes these spikes of temperature. Not all the time, but I, I have seen it. And then put your Doppler on the aortic valve and see if there's a central jet. And if the central jet is wide enough, um, then it can be diagnosed as severe. But I won't go into the details that much. Um, you can also look at the pressure half time, which is another diagnostic criteria. If it's less than 200 milliseconds, then it's um, severe aortic regurgitation. But I think for now, when it comes to your paces, just tell them you would do an echo just to see what the valve morphology looks like, if the aortic root is dilated, and if you can see any vegetations. And otherwise, you'll just wait for the core lab to give you the, the results, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the only other thing just to mention is that if there's any suspicion of uh, aortopathy or a dilated aortic root, yeah. then usually a, uh, a cardiac CT is usually the investigation to best demonstrate that as well. Correct. Yeah, I agree with you. And then moving on to the management of our patient. Again, this spectrum can range from mild to severe aortic regurgitation. But e either way, wherever you are on the spectrum, we always talk about patient education of uh, the nature of the condition, the prognosis, the surveillance. But importantly, Sarah, what are the sort of cornerstones of the medical management of, of our patients with aortic regurgitation? Sam, I just want to emphasize more that patient education is key. If you do not educate your patients about the pathology, then they will also not know what symptoms to focus on to alert you as a healthcare professional in a timely manner. Not only that, I know I don't know if you've done if you've seen it in your clinical practice, but a lot of patients tell you, oh, I didn't know I had that, but they did know they had it, but they didn't have a lot of explanation about it, and therefore it causes a lot of miscommunication, and it can make you get caught up in things that you don't want to get caught up in. So just make sure as a doctor that you really, really educate your patient about um, the disease and what the symptoms are and what the prognosis is. But when it comes to patients with chronic aortic regurgitation and the examiner asks you, okay, how would you manage this? I think it's very important to tell them about the volemic status of the patient. So if you think the patient is decompensated, then I expect you as an examiner, uh, as a candidate to tell me that you would treat them with the appropriate heart failure treatments in chronic aortic regurgitation. But in acute aortic regurgitation, surgery, 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 surgery. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, absolutely. When the valve is as bad as it is in acute severe AR, the reason why it's a, a heart emergency, and particularly for those listeners who are rather in the out in the DGHs, the district general hospitals, rather than the tertiary centres, the importance of flagging these patients early to the uh, cardiac surgery team or your at least your local cardiology team is is absolutely critical because these are time sensitive conditions that need urgent transfer to a surgical centre for urgent valve replacement. 
Right. And then when you talk about chronic, so I'm talking about chronic AR at this moment. So you have a patient who presents with chronic aortic regurgitation. What kind of medical therapy would you offer them? So the only thing that's been implemented in the guidelines or taken up by the guidelines is ACE inhibitors, which might provide symptomatic improvement. If they've already undergone surgery and they're still asymptomatic, then you can give them ACE and beta blockers. If they're morphinoid, beta blockers are the mainstay treatment before and after surgery because it reduces the shear stress and the aortic growth rate. If they're bicuspid aortic valve, ACE or ARB or beta blockers if there's aortic root dilatation or ascending aortic dilatation. I am emphasizing again, this is the medical therapy in patients not requiring surgery. Why am I doing that? Because patients that do require surgery are a bit different when it comes to medical therapy. So surgery, if you have a patient with asymptomatic chronic aortic regurgitation and the left ventricle is dilated LVEDD above 65 millimeters or uh, reduced LVEF and they are asymptomatic, they should be referred for surgery. So that basically means that, so the LVEDD is the end diastolic dimension or end diastolic diameter. So what we're basically saying is, is that if you've got aortic regurgitation, chronic aortic regurgitation with a dilated heart or it's starting to affect their systolic function, those are indications for surgery, right? Correct. And surgery is recommended in all symptomatic patients with severe aortic regurgitation, regardless of their left ventricular function. And this is a class 1B indication, just so you know that it's very, very important. And of course, if they have Marfan syndrome or anything with an ascending aortic dilatation, um, surgery is recommended in case of Marfan syndrome, the ascending aorta is equal to or more than 50 millimeter, or if they're a patient without connective tissue disease with a dilated ascending aorta equal or more than 55 millimeter, they should go for surgery. Is this correct, Sam? This is literally what I learned for the ESC guidelines. So that's why I'm uh, just spitting it out at this moment. It sounds accurate, Sarah. I'll trust you on it. But what I think the important thing for our listeners is the, the take home will be if it's chronic severe AR without symptoms, it has to be, it has to start affecting either the size at the size of your LV or the LV function, but severe chronic symptomatic AR, regardless of uh, effect on LV function should be referred for surgery. Correct. And I guess the other thing, which we should just mention at this point, Sarah is um, aortic regurgitation in the presence of a prosthetic aortic valve. Why is that such a bad sign if patient uh, if our candidates encounter that in their clinical practice unfortunately because these patients tend to not do well so you have transvalvular regurgitation and you have paravalvular regurgitation as well as transvalvular regurgitation and paravalvular regurgitation in patients who've already had prosthetic heart valve this, these both are associated with poor outcomes with both conservative management as well as surgical treatments. Um, that's why intervention in these patients is a bit of a question mark at this moment in the cardiac world because we don't quite know how to help them. We can give them another valve, but we don't know whether their morbidity and mortality will be decreased by doing that and whether reintervention is actually the right way to go with these patients. Yeah. And the other thing just for our listeners' interest is that so transvalvular is when you've got regurgitation through the prosthetic valve and paravalvular is, that, is actually when you're getting regurgitation from around where the valve is is sewn in, in, in the heart. And so yeah. usually that is a suggestion of dehiscence of the valve yeah. and, and a suggestion that the, the valve actually isn't stable where it sits in the heart. So that's the concern. Yeah, correct. Well, Sarah, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about from a perspective of AR? But I think we're, I think we're pretty much done. What do you think? I think uh, just one more thing, Sam. I think when it comes to the management of acute severe aortic regurgitation, the do's and don'ts, if you're all right with it. 
I think um, when it comes to patients with acute severe AR, emergency aortic valve replacement or repair is the mainstay treatment. Now, if there's any delay in surgery, you might need to temporarily stabilize them with the help of our colleagues from intensive care um, by giving them intravenous vasodilators, plus minus inotropic agents. Please, please, please do not think of an intraortic balloon pump because inflation of the balloon in the diastole of the intraortic balloon pump will actually worsen the severity of AR and they will go into profound, profound cardiogenic shock. LV assist devices, same sort of mechanism. And the thing that you, during the take or as the doctor that sees these patients, do not give them beta blockers. I know patients with aortic dissection um, are treated with beta blockers, but the issue is if you have aortic dissection with acute AR, the beta blockers will block the compensatory tachycardia and may cause marked hypotension. And that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, great addition there at the end. But I guess the main thing for our listeners is, is that if there's any concern about this sort of thing don't forget that you're not the only person around in hospital overnight these sorts of patients need to be escalated at least to your if it's daytime to your medical consultants on call even better to be a consultant cardiologist and if it's overnight i honestly don't think there would be a a problem either phoning a cardiac surgery registrar on call providing you've got the echocardiogram available i agree you're not alone it's a being a doctor is a multidisciplinary team effort, so you're not alone. Absolutely. Well, Sarah, I think that's all we had to cover from the perspective of aortic regurgitation. But now it's time for you to face our semi-regular feature of Reg Against the Machine. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, okay. The best podcast feature that's ever been seen is Reg Against the Machine. Well... Listeners, we did indeed record a Reg Against the Machine, but unfortunately two things happened to hamper that process. The first of which I'm not proud of. Listeners, I have a confession. I cut corners with this episode's Reg Against the Machine. I used ChatGPT to write the quiz on the topic of the Netherlands because Sarah was broadcasting to us from there. And ChatGPT gave me a load of answers which were convincing enough for me to believe but they were not correct, which I only found out after we recorded. The second issue was that halfway through Reg Against the Machine, there was a fault in the recording that only became apparent at the end of the podcast. So we lost half of Reg Against the Machine. I cut my losses and decided to get rid of the whole thing to save you all some listening time. So indeed, that is all the time we have for this week's show. Before we closed, I did of course say a huge thank you to Dr. Sarah Verhemmel for her help in guiding us through aortic regurgitation Please don't forget to like, follow and subscribe to the show. We always love to hear from you, so get in touch via the Twitter or via the website. If you really want to go above and beyond and support the show, it's buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast. <laughs>